Hello Mantras, and welcome to our conversation series and podcast, Motown Notes. In case you didn't join us last time, we're in the middle of a three-part series focused on local housing. Two weeks ago, reporter Josue Perez talked to a local realtor about the state of the real estate market in Montrose. This week, we're tackling a more difficult subject, housing insecurity in Montrose and the Western Slope. We don't expect to find the direct solution today, but we're hoping this episode provides some insights into what housing security looks like in Western Colorado and the potential remedies that some dedicated people, including some of our guests, are working on. For this conversation, we're joined by Montrose City Manager Bill Bell, the Executive Director of the Housing Resources of Western Colorado, Emily Powell, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Western Colorado University, Matt Aronson, as well as Housing Advocate Annie Beal. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Delta Montrose Electric Association for their sponsorship. Also, if any comments or questions come up during this conversation, log on to nabur.montrosepress.com and post them there. We'll be sure to answer. So first of all, let's define the problem. When we talk about housing insecurity, what do we mean? Emily, would you like to start? Sure. Thanks for having me tonight. You know, housing insecurity means probably exactly what you think it means. Um, It means when people are struggling to find or stay in housing that's reliable and safe to them. And so that usually comes down to a mismatch between what's available in the market and what they can afford. So that can look like people um, being homeless or on the on the brink of being homeless. Um, It can look like people just not being sure when they can if they're going to be able to make their rent payment that month. for some people, it also means just not being able to live in very good conditions, um, not being able to move if their if their rental unit is in bad shape and their landlord isn't keeping it up, um, not being able to make repairs on their home if they own the home. Um, so it can look different to different people, but fundamentally what it comes down to is that mismatch between uh, people's income and what it costs to secure a, a home that is safe, um, and quality and affordable to them uh, on an ongoing basis. Mm. That's a that's a wonderful definition because housing insecurity is more than just what you might first think of of people experiencing homelessness. Housing insecurity can affect people who have regular full time jobs who are working multiple part time jobs. Um, it's it's the gambit of um, not having an excellent place to to live essentially. Um, so. Um, what, what causes housing insecurity? Um, Matt, do you want to take this one? Uh, first of all, I'd just like to say, yeah, thanks for having me. And I very much agree with Emily's uh, description of housing insecurity. Um, variously defined, like housing inadequacy is another way to think of it. Um, I would, I guess the only, one of the only things I would add is, is to that definition real quick is that um, inadequate housing is housing that's not proximate to where you need to be. Right, in terms of getting to work and uh, transportation access. And inadequate housing is that kind of housing or dwelling opportunities that, um, that basically uh, isolate people that are maybe on the outskirts of town where they maybe don't want to be. Uh, I guess I would just sort of add a little wrinkle. Now the causes, um, don't hold it against me, but uh, as a sociologist, I, I try to think of, of kind of the macro level social forces that contribute to this crisis. And the housing crisis um, in places like rural Colorado, it's, we're, not, we're not special, we're not unique. Uh, housing crises are going on all across the globe. 
uh, from uh, you know Hong Kong to the United Kingdom uh, and even in rural areas of uh, those those uh, uh, various countries. And so, uh, just in terms of the causes are many, um, more I guess larger scale, I would describe the situation that we have been in for a number of decades now. Actually, the housing crisis is not new. Um, that it, it corresponds to the the fact that residential property has become financialized. In other words, um, people owners uh, who have uh, who are land landlords, um, they're increasingly either needing to rely on or turning to their housing properties as a source of, of income, as, as profit making. Um, and I see that as in tension with, or perhaps in conflict with what I, I try to understand housing's role as a stabilizer of communities and of social bonds and family relationships. Um, and that housing in communities can be a big part of the social fabric, the kind of social glue that holds people together in, in edifying and helpful ways. So that's part of it. And it makes sense in the context of consumer capitalism, hollowing out of uh, well-benefited, high-paying jobs, an increase in low-wage precarious employment, um, an increase in the cost of childcare, an increase in the costs of healthcare, um, a decrease uh, in people's uh, access to healthcare, though we've seen some changes in that recently. Um, there are a lot of different causes, I would say, of housing inadequacy. And when you have a situation where landlords, uh, for instance, landlords um, need to rely on the income they get from basically uh, selling access to their properties, and you have a situation where tenants are increasingly desperate, all kinds of complications ensue. And so I'm, I'm mainly concerned with the, the consequences, uh, especially the social consequences of the housing crisis. Absolutely, yeah, Matt, you brought up a really great point that this, um, that this housing crisis that has become more of an issue in national and local headlines in recent years is something that's been happening for decades. Um, and it's not, it's not just happening here, it's happening everywhere in the world, right? Um, but, uh, Annie, I'd like you to contextualize what housing insecurity looks like here on the western slope of Colorado. You know, thank you, Anna. I've been really looking at manufactured home communities and also homes that are facing a burden of not having enough upkeep. And out here in the West, there's a history of manufactured home communities being put in place in the late 60s and 70s as sometimes a temporary action or sometimes as a way to get some homes down, they're manufactured, they're easy to go up, and then they haven't really been upkept over the past 60 years. And that is the similar with just um, single family homes that have been owned by low income home owners and the type of access to financials that our rural communities have had to continue living and not necessarily invest in the upkeep of homes. And so we're seeing a turn of these homes that are really aging in our current stock. And so while there is a conversation in the housing realm of 
we need to build new units and increase the housing stock. There's also a need to focus on the current stock and old stock of what type of water infrastructure already exists, electrical infrastructure already exists, and people already living in these homes that really are needing some support and upkeep and really bringing us into the next decade as we're facing a lot of changes here in the West with climate and economy and community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you bring up a really good point because a lot of times when we talk about solutions to housing, we talk about new developments and everything, but sometimes we need to just upkeep and improve the, the housing that we have available. Um, like you're saying, yeah. Um, Bill, just to zoom in a little bit more, um, what do you, how do you see housing insecurity here in Montrose, Colorado, in the city of Montrose? So we, we've been working on this for a few years. It's not a recent phenomenon, but as the rising cost, as was mentioned, uh, access to housing has been really difficult at all levels of socioeconomic status in our community. So we're, it's kind of a catch 22 where we have a great economy here in Montrose. It's double digit growth every year for three, four years. We're adding tons of new jobs, new employers, new businesses, but there's nowhere for those new employees to live, especially entry level professionals, teachers, police officers, people making not low income, but entry level salaries, 50000 a year, for example. It's really hard to find a place to live uh, and be able to afford your mortgage or even get into a rentable property. And a lot of that's because of the dilapidated housing stock that we have, which was just mentioned. And uh, so there's a lot of programs in the works right now, a lot of projects uh, that can't be done solely by the government and by a city, but we can do it with collaboration and with private uh, partnerships. And that's what we're doing here in Montrose. Gotcha. Yeah, no, as a entry-level professional myself, I can I can speak to how, how difficult it was to find a place to rent when I was first moving here. Um, yeah, so it's it's something that, that affects everybody. Bill, a follow-up question for you then. What challenges does Montrose face as a city that other municipalities might not? Like other municipalities in Colorado specifically? Well, I think I like to think of Montrose as having more opportunities than most cities in Colorado uh, because we have a lot of nonprofits in our community, over 250 nonprofits. We have a city council and group of elected officials at the city who are really aggressive and in this area. And so I don't see us having a lot of challenges that are unique. Uh, one might be the political climate in Montrose. It's very conservative. And so anytime the city or local government uh, publicizes that we're starting to put taxpayer dollars toward nonprofit uh, work, uh, we get a little criticism for that, but we know as a, as a whole that the housing problem isn't going away. And so we really have to take an aggressive and active role in that, whether some people in our community think it's a problem or not. Unfortunately, I've been quoted a few times saying that uh, just because you have a house doesn't mean everybody does. And just because you live in a $900,000 house doesn't mean everyone needs one of those. And so uh, we take, we, that's what we're paid to do is deal with those issues. And uh, it's really exciting. Sometimes it's frustrating going through those things, but I really don't think it's unique to Montrose. I think these challenges, I'm on boards all over Colorado and across the country. It's the same issue everywhere. It's just how do you do a multitude of things that solve a variety of issues? My background is psychology, criminal psychopathology, so I understand the socioeconomic part of it, 
sociological part of it, when you're and you're talking about homeless or at risk of homelessness, or you're talking low to moderate income subsidized housing, or you're talking entry level workforce housing. So there's a lot of different things that we have to address all at the same time, which is why it's exciting for me. But it's also that would be a challenging uh, issue to deal with just because there's so many facets. Absolutely. Yeah. So we just heard from Bill about some of the initiatives that the city is taking, like such as public private partnerships. But Emily, I want um, could you elaborate on what um, housing resources does and the kinds of things that you guys offer? Sure. Housing resources has been around in Colorado for now more than 40 years. And we've kind of had a growing mission since then, really started as we were called the weatherization office, excuse me, the energy office because our focus was weatherization work. And since then we've, we've really grown. So in um, the Montrose area, we offer uh, weatherization, which is a good way to help people um, keep up their home, their home asset. Um, we also offer housing counseling and education. Um, we're very active in community building and engagement in the Montrose area. That's really the center of our community building and engagement work is uh, Montrose. And that means working with residents, particularly residents say like in mobile home parks or other kind of more vulnerable um, populations um, and working with other housing agencies and social service agencies in town to come up with a coordinated response to housing challenges. Um, and we're excited to be starting soon, sometime soon, hopefully next year um, with our homeownership program there, which right now we do through a self-help program that's supported by USDA. So this is the model where people um, put in some sweat equity and build um, their own home. And we have some lots secured for that. We'd like to see that um, that grow in the Montrose area uh, since there's certainly a lot of demand and opportunity there. But the real focus of housing resources is um, on this idea of housing stability and sustainability. So it's helping people meet the housing needs that that they have um, in a way that's affordable to them. So it needs to be very individualized and a healthy housing market offers opportunity at all parts of the housing needs spectrum from people who need like the most immediate emergency help uh, because they're experiencing homelessness and they need support services all the way up to subsidized rental and then market rate rental, some entry level homeownership, and then you know even the higher end homeownership. That's what a healthy housing market looks like. Yeah, when what you were talking about with the um, with the increased emphasis on community building, it, it reminded me of what Matt you were talking about earlier, um, and uh, I just wanted to hear your perspective uh, as an academic who studies this. Um, what do you think the housing market is fixable? Like, what do you think? What do you think are solutions that uh, potential solutions for this and this is a, and then we'll, we'll I'll, I'll ask other people about this too, um, as we pivot to talking about that, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good question. It's a rich, rich question. Um, while I'm not an economist and wouldn't ever pretend to be one, um, I, I do understand market, like I conceive of markets, housing markets, labor markets, um, as having very rich, complex social dimensions. And, you know, for, to, 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 you know, fully under, more fully understand um, the dynamics of a housing market, especially when when we claim that it's in crisis. I think it's it it helps to do a couple of things. First of all, I ask who's disproportionately affected, who's most vulnerable, 
to housing in, in, in the concept of housing crisis. And then the second piece is like you're asking, well, what, what could be done? And I appreciated Emily's um, response to, to that in terms of the various things that, that they're doing. Um, you know, housing crises disproportionately affect uh, single women, for instance. They disproportionately affect single parents who have children. They disproportionately are damaging to the lives of seniors who are struggling in the context of life in general, but also with age discrimination and, and things like that. Um, it's it, people who are especially vulnerable, um, I think need to be front and center here. And then to come back to um, part of what I remember Bill saying, it has to do with like who has a stake in ensuring over time that a community is robust and vital, uh, that people in the community, wherever they originate, where they come from, that they can thrive. Who has a stake in that? And I think the obvious answer is all of us do, but maybe the not so obvious answer is that business owners are part of that, that they shall be and must be, I think, included in the, the equation of what can be done. I'd like to see even more, uh, in some communities it's fairly high, in some communities it's fairly low. I'd like to see even more investment or support from either locally owned businesses or large uh, external kind of corporate concerns um, or franchisees. I'd like to see greater support from them uh, in either subsidizing directly or indirectly or in creative ways, uh, securing housing availability for their employees. I agree, Bill, that government can't do everything and probably shouldn't be charged with doing everything or solving all our problems. Um, I think, though, it, it, that it can't be the sole source of the solution. Um, I do think that uh, local governments can do a better job, perhaps especially on the Western Slope um, at routinely doing building code uh, enforcement and building code inspections. I'd like to see a little bit more of that, most especially in the areas where evictions are very high because typically uh, there's just a small number of people who are landlords who are doing the evicting that account for most of the evictions in a given neighborhood. These are serial evictors. Not all of them are bad people. They don't have bad intentions necessarily, um, but it'd be interesting to find out who, who they are and, and uh, what's going on there in terms of what can either a combination of maybe a city, a public-private partnership do in terms of, say, uh, pre-eviction mediation, uh, providing services for that, uh, but also trying to figure out, are there banks that are supporting, uh, that are giving relatively low interest loans or um, sweet deals to these serial evictors? I think it's important to know that. And the last thing I'd say is that, you know, if we can find good data, especially in our area on the Airbnb listings, Airbnb is not going away. Uh, and it's an interesting, um, arguably not very creative part of consumer capitalism to turn in, turn, turn real estate, residential real estate into a profit making thing. Um, but it is, it is growing. It's, uh, it's an extraordinary phenomenon. And I'd be interested to see if counties or uh, municipalities have data uh, that compare Airbnb listings with eviction rates. Bill, I'd like to hear your take then on um, short term vacation rentals here in Montrose, because here, here in Montrose, we're kind of in the middle of the valley and we're not, it's not quite as desirable of a vacation spot as something like Gunnison or Telluride or at the higher elevation in, in the mountains. But um, have, have you seen, uh, a, have you been able to see what the role of um, short-term vacation rentals is in, in Montrose and how that has changed over the years? 
Yeah, we implemented uh, an ordinance here a couple of years ago based on some of the neighboring mountain communities. It's much more prevalent in the mountain communities where they have ski resorts and, and high-end destination recreation opportunities. We're more of the pass-through community or the community where all the workers live to support those areas. And so uh, we do track short-term rentals here in our community. We use lodging revs, which is a, a branch of muni revs for the collection side on lodging tax. And, and we've had a handful of new ones each year, but we really don't have a huge uh, issue with short-term rentals yet here in Montrose. Last year, I think our total count was up to 82 or 90 in total. And so it just isn't as prevalent as it is up in Mountain Village, Telluride, Uray, uh, over in Gunnison, Crested Butte in that area. Uh, but I also want to mention that um, I also think that local government should be involved in this and doing projects. And I am really proud. And, and I don't want to run out of time without letting everybody know what the city is doing here in Montrose with private partners. Uh, it was brought up earlier, mobile home parks and fixing those up or manufactured homes and, and having those available to people. Um, we are partnering with the private entity that's cleaning up three of our mobile home parks. They're putting $6 million into that project. The city's putting 600,000 into that to support it, to provide self, uh, safe drinking water and good sanitation. We found uh, when somebody went in to actually inspect those systems, we had people in our community living in poverty. They had no running water and no sanitation right here in the city. Most of us didn't know that existed. Mm -hmm. And so we're helping fix that. We're putting 750,000 into expanding Cimarron Creek manufactured home community by providing the sewer extensions for that project, which will bring online 125 new manufactured home sites uh, for um, entry level professionals, as well as seniors. It's primarily retirees in that area. We're putting in $3 million to water and sewer infrastructure to provide multifamily apartment complexes for workforce housing market rate. And then we're partnering with CASA to build a tiny home community and multifamily community to support the 18 to 24 year olds who are at risk of homelessness after they get out of foster care programs. So we're doing that. And then we're also partnering and we just went to Grand Junction and toured the Pathways Village uh, this week. And uh, we're talking about doing something similar here in our community for more of a permanent supportive housing or tenancy supportive housing uh, project, which would be more voucher based and low to moderate income uh, slash homeless. So we're working on a lot of things right now. Sometimes uh, it, it doesn't read that way in social media or something, but uh, just want to let everybody know there is a lot of work being done at the moment. Thank you for going into that, Bill. I, I had a question for you specifically about that. So um, thank you for going into that um, before I, I asked a question to prompt you. So, um, and that's that's reassuring to hear that um, the city is, so to speak, putting their money where their mouth is um, on this issue. Um, Annie, I want to ask you another question um, too, which is, um, what are some roadblocks blocks do you see to to more affordable housing, and how do you think those can be overcome? Well, people always say money, and I'm so glad to see that. Uh, the city of Montrose is investing heavily in affordable housing. And I think in, a, in conjunction with funds is community support. I think there's a critical need for community organizations to be forming different coalitions or working groups to support communities to move from these systems of 
being kept in poverty or kept in a housing situation that is not sustainable and to really support community members to move through these layers similar to uh, housing resources of Western Colorado. And so the more that communities come together and form these networks to not only build in funds, but to build in supportive programs and um, aid residents in gaining control of their communities, whether that's a manufactured home community, the more that communities can have control of land and housing, they can continue to invest in their future. And so that relates to what Matt was talking about, how housing has become financialized and it always has been a really private uh, individual effort towards the American dream. And when we start to shift our notions that this is a community effort and we can bring other members of our community to reach these goals of having secure permanent housing and having ownership of the homes and the land under their homes, uh, there's just a total possibility to make more resilient choices and lead to a lot more growth in our community's capacity once housing is firmly secured and so much more can come from that. You make, uh, all of y'all are making me think of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs where housing and basic shelter are at the bottom of the, of the triangle and of course it goes up. Um, so that's not, that's not only true, from what I understand from what you're saying, it's not only true for an individual, but of course for the community because without a solid space, for everyone to come together um, and for everyone to, to be and to live, a community can't grow and foster like it should. On that note, I really pre we're out of time and I really appreciate um, y'all giving your time this evening for this wonderful conversation. Um, and thanks again to all of our guests, Bill Bell, Emily Powell, Matt Aronson, and Annie Beal. Again, if our conversation brought up any comments or questions, head over to nabur.montrosepress.com and post them. And thanks again to Delta Montrose Electric Association for their continued support. Montad News was created by Justin Tubbs and Josue Perez, edited by Sean Flannelly and Sean Fitzpatrick, and additional production support from myself, Annalyn Winfrey, and Cassie Knust. We'll be back after Thanksgiving for our final episode in the series on the future of housing development in Montrose. Thanks, y'all.